Okay, so I know that we're, we're throwing a lot at you each week. We're going through anywhere from three to, to five um, attributes. And if you are feeling a little overwhelmed, I just want to encourage you to stick with it. Uh, our goal with this class is to provide you with a foundation, uh, an introduction into these essential truths so that you can uh, then begin to build and grow in your understanding of who God is. God has revealed himself in his word, and he wants us to know him. Um, Jeremiah 9, 24 says this, Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Right? Theology is... Simply the study of God and the, the scriptures make it clear that every Christian is or should be a theologian. God is infinite and eternal and learning about him is something that we do not only in this life, but is something that we're going to be doing for all eternity. I've been a Christian for about 33 years now and the more I learn about God and his word, the more I realize how much I don't know, right? So the more I know, the more I realize how much I don't. So um, that, that should, if you're feeling a little overwhelmed, hopefully um, that'll um, maybe comfort you and hopefully spur you on to um, stimulate you to um, study all the more. Um, our knowledge of God and his word is not just an intellectual pursuit for our own individual edification, but as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, that should fuel our worship of God, right? Our knowledge of him should fuel our worship of him. David, um, a man after God's own heart, the, uh, the one who had authored numerous of the Psalms, he said this in Psalm 119, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules, All right? So David knew that um, even all that he did knew and, and knowing God, um, he still needed to grow in his knowledge and understanding of the Lord and um, that that would fuel worship. So this morning, we're going to briefly consider four truths. We're going to consider the omniscience of God, the holiness of God, the goodness of God, and the justice of God. Now, um, looking at omniscience of God, what does omniscience mean? This is another one of the omnis. Omni means, right, to have all, right? And science is knowledge, right? So similar to Omnipotent, right? God is all-powerful. Omniscience, God is present, or I'm sorry, uh, omnipresence, God is present everywhere. And with omniscience, God has all knowledge. It's a term that, right, omniscience is properly applied to God alone. Only a being that is infinite and eternal is capable of having uh, knowledge about absolutely everything, right? The knowledge 
of a finite creature is always going to be limited by their finiteness. Uh, and because God is infinite and we are finite or limited, we will never be able to fully understand God. And in this sense, um, God is said to be incomprehensible. Right? You've maybe heard theologians talk about the incomprehensibility of God. It's not that we can't know him, it's just that we can't know him fully. Um, Psalm 147 verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Right? His understanding is unsearchable. In, in the Hebrew, it literally says, to his understanding, there is no number. Right? In its depths and fullness, his understanding cannot be defined by any number. Uh, we'll never be able to, to measure or fully know the understanding of God. It's far, it's far too great for us to be able to understand. Right? There's, no, there's no scale, there's no way to measure infinity. Uh, right? This was David's conclusion in Psalm 139 as he was meditating upon God's knowledge of him. Right? In verse 2 he says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Right? David says in verse 6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, O Lord, it is high, I cannot attain it. Right? And the Apostle Paul implies this incomprehensibility of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, when he says this. He says, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And he goes on to say that no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And then further, God says to the prophet Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right? God being infinite is able to be aware of all things, to understand all things, to comprehend all things. Um, God never learns anything. He never gains new knowledge. Um, God is not bound by time or space. So you have a timeline here of past, present, and future, right? And God is above all that, right? God's above time and space. So all of these things, past, present, and future, are continually and fully before him. Right? That's a, that would be a little difficult to, to comprehend, but um, that's what Scripture teaches us. That God is above uh, he's, uh, the past, present, and future. Um, he's forever aware of all things. He knows our unformed thoughts. He knows the words that come out of our mouth before we know that they're going to come out. Um, he's never surprised by anything. He's never caught off guard. Uh, right? That is the omniscience of God. Now, God's omniscience is closely related to and grounded in his omnipotence. Pastor Brent talked about that, I think, last week. 
Um, Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 10 says this, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declare the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Right? In this verse, we see both omniscience and omnipotence. Um, right? uh, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. Only God is able to do that. Only God is able to declare what is going to happen before it happens. And we see this numerous times in the Old Testament um, where God foretells what's going to happen hundreds of years before it does with great detail, right? Only God is able to do that. And then we also see in that verse his omnipotence. He says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, right? Only God is able to act and no one can thwart his hand. So God declares that um, this is going to happen, and he is able to make that happen. Right? And right, God is not all-knowing simply because he is able to use his superior intellect to um, study the universe and all that it contains. Rather, God knows everything because he has created everything, and he wills everything. Right, as the sovereign ruler of the universe, God controls the universe. Some theologians have tried to, to separate God's omniscience from his omnipotence, but it's impossible for God to know all things without controlling all things. Right? And it's impossible for him to control all things without knowing all things. Right? Like a lot of God's attributes, these things are codependent. Right? They're, they're necessary parts of the whole. And it's important to note that God's knowledge of all things is a two-edged sword, right? For the believer, God's omniscience and his omnipotence offers us security, right? We know that God does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquity. Right? He's in control and he perfectly understands. He's not puzzled or perplexed by those things that puzzle and perplex us uh, frequently, However, for the unbeliever, right, this doctrine highlights the fact that people cannot hide from God. Right? Their sins are completely exposed before him. Like Adam in the garden, they may seek to hide from God, but there is no corner of the universe that his gaze does not um, see, right? either in love or wrath. There's no place that um, one can go. Uh, Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. And then also note that God's omniscience is crucial to his role as judge of the world. And his omniscience is crucial to his role as judge. Right? God has promised to bring about justice and righteousness in the world and for a judge to render a perfectly just judgment or verdict, right? He must know all the facts, right? No evidence is hidden from his sight. All mitigating and aggravating uh, factors are before him, right? They're perfectly known by him. And this is what um, Abraham was speaking to uh, in Genesis 18. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. 
Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Right? Shall he, uh, some translations would say all of the earth do what is just. God is perfectly just. Um, so just briefly summarizing, omniscience means all knowledge. Just talking about the all, um, God's knowledge of all things. Only an infinite being can possess infinite knowledge. God's omniscience is grounded in his infinity and in his omnipotence. His omniscience and omnipotence are um, inextricably linked together. And then God's omniscience is crucial to his role as judge of the world. So moving on to the holiness of God. What, what comes to mind when you think of the holiness of God? Right? What do you what do you initially think of? Very good, because that's not really the common answer that we normally get. Right? She said being set apart. Yeah. So oftentimes people associate it with his purity and his righteousness. And certainly the idea of holiness contains those virtues, but they're not the primary uh, meaning of holiness. The, the primary meaning of, of holiness is, is just as he said, is apartness or otherness. Right? When we say that God is holy, we're calling attention to his profound difference between him and all creatures. Right? It refers to his transcendent majesty, his utter superiority, by virtue of which he is worthy of our honor and our reverence and our adoration and our worship. Isn't part of it then blamelessness? He's set apart because he's blameless? Um, well, that would go to his, his virtue of, uh, of his purity and his righteousness. The whole yeah. Thing. Yep. Um, so when the Bible speaks of holy objects or holy people or a holy time, holy days. Um, it refers to things that have been set apart or made different by the touch of God upon them. Um, in Exodus chapter 3, uh, the account of Moses and the burning bush, uh, Moses speaks to, um, I'm sorry, God speaks to Moses through the bush and tells him to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. Right? The ground was made holy because of God's unique presence um, in that special way um, in the bush there. Um, and it was um, the ordinary uh, was suddenly extraordinary by his presence. And so then the secondary meaning of holy refers to God's pure and righteous actions, his blamelessness. God does what is right, he never does what is wrong, um, he acts in a righteous manner because his nature is holy. Uh, and because God is holy, he is both great and good. Right? There's no evil mixed with his goodness. So when we are called to be holy, like in passages of 1 Peter 1.15, he says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Right? That does not mean that we're called to share in God's divine majesty, rather we are to be different from our normal fallen sinfulness. Right? We're called to mirror and reflect the moral 
character and activity of God, right? We are to imitate his goodness, right? That's our call to be holy. Um, so I know that that was a, a quick run through of holiness. Holiness has, just to summarize, it has two distinct meanings. It has um, his apartness or his otherness uh, separate from, and then the second one being his pure and righteous actions. And then we are called to be holy, to reflect God's righteousness and purity. Any questions about that? I know we ran through that quickly. Nope. Okay, moving on to the goodness of God. The goodness of God. Um, James 1.17 says this, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Um, with that, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, God never changes. With him there is no variation or shadow. Um, this suggests that not only is God immaterial, right? he doesn't have a physical body, he's not capable of um, casting a shadow physically, but um, also in a, in, in a spiritual sense, uh, there's no shadow side to God, right, in, a, in that figurative and moral sense, right? Shadow, a shadow suggests darkness, and darkness suggests evil. And since there is no evil in God, and there's no hint of darkness in him either, um, he is the, the father of lights. And so that, that father of lights is talking about uh, the sun and the moon and the other celestial bodies that appear to us to uh, have shadows and change from time to time. Well, God does not change. God never changes. Um, he does not have a shadow side. He, he does not have any darkness in him at all. So when James says there is no shadow due to change, this is a reference to God's character. Um, not only is he altogether good, he's also um, consistently good. He, he, he never changes. And, and why would he change? What, what would he change? Right? He's not going to get better in some way. He's not going to grow in knowledge in some way. Um, so God never changes. And then we see that the law of God reflects his goodness. The law of God reflects his goodness. God is said to be good not because he obeys some cosmic law outside of himself that uh, judges him or declares him to be good, right? God does obey a law, but the law that he obeys is the law of his own character, right? Which is eternally, immutably, and intrinsically good, right? God's law, as revealed in the Old Testament, reflects his character and reflects his goodness. And then James also says in that verse, um, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God, right? God is not only the ultimate standard of goodness, he's also the source of all goodness. Right? He's also the source. One of the most often cited verses uh, in the New Testament is Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Right? This verse on God's providence, while... In one sense, it's, it's easy to understand. In another sense, it, it can be difficult to wrap your mind around. Um, if God is able to make everything that happens to us 
work together for our good, then ultimately everything that happens to us is good, right? However, we must uh, be careful to emphasize that word ultimately, right? On this side of eternity, there indeed may be um, things that happen to us that are evil. We must be careful not to, to call evil good or good evil. Um, so in this life, when we encounter trials of various kinds, as, as James talks about, um, afflictions, injustices, a uh, host of other evils, yet God in his goodness transcends all of these things and works them to our good and for his glory. So for the Christian, ultimately, there are no tragedies. Ultimately, the providence of God and the goodness of God works all these proximate evils for our benefit. So just to, to briefly summarize, there's no shadow side to God. And there's no darkness in him at all. God is not under a law, but rather he obeys the law of his own character. And then God is not only good, but he is also the source of everything that is good. Psalm 100 um, says this, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Any questions about that? About the goodness of God? And then finally, we're going to move on to the justice of God. Right? Justice is a, a word that we hear almost every day, it seems like. Right? We use it. Well, I do in my line of work. But, um, right, we, you hear of it in personal relationships. You hear about it in social contexts. You hear about it in uh, the context of um, legislation, right, our legislators, um, and then our, our court system, right? Something that their courts uh, seek to uphold justice, right? As, as commonplace as that word justice is, um, it actually has perplexed philosophers who've sought to adequately define what justice actually is. Sometimes justice is equated to what is earned or deserved. And we speak of people right, getting their just desserts. Um, in terms of, of rewards or punishments. Uh, but rewards are not always based on merit. Um, Aristotle defined justice as this. He says, giving a person what is his or her due. Right? What is due may be determined by an ethical obligation or by some prior agreement, some prior arrangement. Um, so if, if a person is punished more severely than what uh, his or her crime deserves, then the punishment would not be just. It would be unjust. And if a person receives a lesser reward than what he or she has earned, then the reward would not be just. Right? So then 
How does mercy relate to justice? Well, mercy and justice are obviously um, different things, but they are inextricably related and are um, sometimes confused. Mercy occurs when wrongdoers are given less punishment than their deeds deserved. And um, conversely, grace occurs when someone receives rewards that they did not earn. Right? So mercy occurs when you receive less punishment than you deserve, and grace is receiving a reward that you did not earn. Now, God uh, tempers his justice with mercy, right? And his grace is essentially a kind of mercy. Um, God is merciful to us when he withholds the punishment that we deserve and is gracious when he rewards our obedience despite the fact that we owe obedience to him and, and therefore do not uh, merit any reward. Right? Mercy is always voluntary with God. He is never obligated to be merciful to anyone and he reserves the right to exercise his mercy according to his good pleasure. Right? In Romans, this is what uh, the Apostle Paul was speaking to in Romans chapter 9. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Right? So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Right? Some people complain that because God does not extend his grace or mercy equally to everyone, that God is somehow unfair or unjust. Right? In other words, if God pardons one person, he's then obligated to pardon everyone. Yet we see in scripture that God does not treat everyone equally. When God revealed himself to Abraham back in the Old Testament, he did it in a way that he uh, didn't reveal himself to the other pagans of the ancient world. Right? Abraham was a, a moon worshiper when God first revealed himself to him. And, and certainly he revealed himself to Abraham in a way that he didn't reveal himself to, to Judas Iscariot. Right? Um, he also graciously appeared to the Apostle Paul. Right? Paul received mercy and grace from God and uh, Judas uh, Iscariot, he received justice. Right? Mercy and grace are uh, forms of non-justice, but they are not acts of injustice. Let me say that again. Mercy and grace are forms of non-justice, but they are not acts of injustice. Right? If Judas's punishment was more severe than he deserved, then he would have something about which to complain. Right? Paul received grace, but this does not require that Judas also receive grace. Right? If grace is required from God, if God is obligated to be gracious to somebody, then we're not talking about uh, grace. We're talking about justice. So biblically speaking, justice is defined in terms of righteousness. Right? When God is just, he's doing what is right. He's doing what is right. Genesis 18, Abraham asked God a rhetorical question that can only obviously have one answer. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And likewise, the Apostle Paul raised a similar rhetorical question in Romans 9.14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. <clears throat> By no means. Right? So justice is giving what is due. Biblical justice is linked to righteousness, to doing what is right. 
and injustice is outside the category of justice and is a violation of justice. Mercy is also outside the category of justice, but is not a violation of justice. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? This is a quiet group. We've frozen in our chairs this morning. <laughs> it's not getting any warmer. So, again, I know we're, we're throwing a lot at you in this class. It's, again, this is just a high-speed overview, hopefully to introduce you to, I think there's 105 uh, attributes in this book. Um, so, um, hopefully it'll just help um, form a foundation upon which you can build and grow and your understanding of who God is. Um, the, the neat thing about this, I think, is that it, it gives you an exposure to a lot very quickly. And then as um, you, you read and you study or sit under the teaching of God's word, um, you can develop your understanding more fully on these um, various doctrines. So. Next week, uh, Sean's going to teach right there. Sean Watson. Yep. And we're going to be in uh, the classroom over by the kitchen because the new member class is going to be in here next week. Uh, yeah, right. That starts. Unfortunately, that room is not any warmer than this room. So <laughs> you might want to dress accordingly. It's supposed to be warmer next week. Yes. Oh, it is. Okay. 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 Right. Well, let me, let me close in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself not only in creation, but more fully in your word, and that we can know you through your word. And Lord, I pray for your spirit to teach us and to guide us in the knowledge of the truth and the knowledge of who you are, that it might um, fuel our worship of you, that we would worship you rightly in spirit and in truth. Lord, we pray for the worship service to follow, that your spirit would um, attend to our, our gathering this morning, that um, your name would be lifted high, that our worship and song would be a sweet sound in your ear, and that the proclamation of your word would go forth to accomplish its sanctifying work in us. Lord, I pray that you would give us um, eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, and uh, Lord, we just commit the entire uh, service to you um, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.